everybody. Welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast bonus episode, A Storied Life. Um, this bonus episode is going to be all um, stories for you that were recorded at Doghouse Theater and uh, Sick Puppies Comedy. And I'm there every weekend. And for the past two weekends, they've used me a lot because it's been very quiet, um, either because of the you know COVID situation or... Just that it's a quiet time of year, post-holidays, people are either hunkering down or who the hell knows what anybody's doing. But we ended up having two really cool crowds. So I do have to preface this by saying, you know, I'm not in a room full of 70 people and you're not going to hear that kind of laughter. I'm in a room full of seven or eight people. Um, Paid customers, I think both nights, um, there were about 10 people in the audience that were paid. And then the rest are the improv troops. So a lot of the people laughing are, are improv people. But... I have to say that this has been um, super fun, man. It's been super fun, and it's a super cool opportunity to be able to get any quality stage time to to say, "Hey, that hit." So I gotta I gotta tell you to, you know, as a comedian, um, depending on the scene, and and by that I say anybody will tell you that a city scene, comedy wise. Uh, there's usually more open mics and more opportunities to get in larger, um, larger crowds of people. But you know, COVID changed all of that. At the same time, Florida has never really been following COVID restrictions. But I mean, we parks have been packed ever since this whole thing started. So the comedy scene hasn't really died out. If, if there are precautions taken, yada yada yada. But at the same time, you can get decent open mic time in any anywhere you go. The question is, is how do you tell from that open mic what material I should continue to try to develop? That's very difficult to do because the laughs are two different things at an open mic. If you're lucky enough to be in a spot that has a mixture of comedians waiting to get up an actual audience, you can trust that laughter, but that's few and far between. There are shows that will give you a mixture, a good audience, but they're in a bar and it's very difficult to keep them quiet because, you know, they didn't necessarily come for a comedy show. You know, when you go to a comedy show, you sit down in a seat, look, and you're like, okay, I'm ready for somebody to come and do comedy on me. But at these open mics, people are going on. They went to a bar and they're, you know, sitting there having an appetizer and all of a sudden there's some asshole standing on the stage trying to tell jokes and you don't give a shit. The value of that is that if you can be a comedian that gets up and can silence that crowd no matter who they are, now, now you know you have a presence. Now you know that that, that room, you can, you can command a room, which is, su- I, for me, super important. Because that's the, that's the thing that I usually try to glean from open mics. When I get on that stage and I start doing my thing, can I keep their attention? And you have to be super careful about when you're losing it. And it's so easy to lose it. Crowds are forgiving, but at the same time, they want to be entertained. And if they're not, they're in their phones. They're, you know, thinking about what they got to do next. It's, it's tough. So open mics are very, very tricky to figure out um, what material that you may or may not think. And, and there, you may get off the stage and be like, oh my God, that joke was terrible. It didn't hit. And it might be one of the best in your arsenal. Because nobody laughed doesn't mean that it, you know, you just need good, solid crowds, paying crowds to stand in front of them, whether it's two or 10 or 200. 
And, and those are few and far between these days, especially on this scene and, and you know, on the Florida scene. Um, not un, unfindable, but uh, if that's even a word. But um, so I'm thankful to be able to get in front of anybody that plunked down an amount of cash to be entertained. That's the point. That is the point. And, and I try to get up on that stage and be there and, and you and hone a skill, I guess, that do I have your attention? Am I keeping your attention? And can I get a reaction from you every couple of seconds? That's ideally my blueprint for the one man show. My blueprint is I'm going to, it's, at no point in a roller coaster are you like, oh, this sucks, right? You know, even when you are building up to that giant uh, dip down, it, it's it's a buildup, and there there are ways to move move people in directions. Because, and and what you're gonna hear, I wish you could see, because what I am thankful for. And, and um, grateful to have the opportunity to do is to develop a comfortability on stage in front of any audience. And, and now I'm starting to interact with the crowd, and which is something I never did. I would get on stage and there are very few uh, comedians that I see that, that can do like, not crowd work in that you're gonna point people out and make fun of them, but to sort of get the crowd involved in a way that, that keeps the whole crowd engaged. And there are very few people that can do that well. And I'm not saying I'm one of them. I'm not. Um, but I'm starting to enjoy having interaction with the audience. And that's one of the things that improv is teaching me is that you can have that interaction. You can have a relationship with that being, that crowd. Um, and in one of the stories you're going to hear... That that middle row of people, man, they were participating. They were like, oh, how do I fill out an application? And one girl yelled out something else. And and it was just, it, it was during the hockey mom story. So I got stories for you. Um, I have prison logic. Keep in mind that, that a lot of these stories, I end up reverting back to my comedy so it's hard to tell here whether or not this was an actual me trying to tell a story based on a word and you'll hear them yell the word out or whether or not I'm just doing stand-up. But there's a couple stories in here where you hear me doing my typical jokes, which have always been the foundation of my material and, and when I've gotten on stage. But at the same time, I'm trying to, at this point, I'm just trying to find a comfortability with introducing every one of the characters and and. I was, I was happy the past couple of weeks because when I got up, I was able to talk about mom and her car. I'm, and, and one of the other bits that has developed that I don't have here for you, but I posted on the Facebook site, it was just a simple joke about being a rat. And I said, you know, Nancy, um, my dad's girlfriend ratted me out so she could get less time. And I'm okay with it because, you know, when it really comes down to it, everybody's a fucking rat. And if you think that you're not, if you, you think you're a, a solid dude that would never rat, you're you're probably the first person that's going to sing. Right? So the person that claims and sings the most that they would never rat anybody out is probably the person that will give you up. And it's it's absolute bullshit that there is this code of I don't snitch. There's probably six people in 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 the world uh, the world prison population right now sitting there thinking uh, 
you know, that, that are in because they didn't rat. And you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, Jesus, I should have rat. I should have ratted. So, you know, it's, it's becoming a bit where I'm saying, you know what? It, <laughs> this uh, ditches for snitches is bullshit because there'd be a lot of ditches. Everybody in the system is a rat. Oh, my God. They're telling on each other left and right. La, 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 la. There's so much singing going on in prison, telling on each other that they could do, um, they could do American Idol there. They should do a snitch version of American Idol in any American prison because everyone's tattling. Everybody's tattling. And, and, I mean, the whole system. What do, you, what do you think? That every crime is being solved by some guy sitting in his basement mulling over the details? No, he was told by the, by the second dude that was ready to go down for that. You know what I mean? There's a hierarchy in this crime and the person that committed the crime is accomplices to it. You grab one of those accomplices and you say, hey, hey, accomplice, you tell me what I want to know or I'm putting you in a room with a guy that's going to resize your rectum. La! That dude's going to start singing. This guy's going it, it, It's amazing. It really is amazing. So I'm just trying to dispel the myth that there are solid cons out there that don't tell. Yeah, listen, I, I met a couple of them, but I'll tell you what, you better hope they never open the doors for that person. This this is a person, these are very uniquely dangerous people, the people that don't rat. Because <laughs> they know you, you have to be dead. Don't tell anybody, and anybody you tell, got to kill them after. <laughs> it, it, um, so... You know that that's turning into a bit. The part about my my mom and the Chevy Citation and and how it was parked, that's developing into you know just developing into ways to uh, build her as a character, both in my stand up and both in the one man show, and and it's cool, it's cool. So I hope you enjoy the stories. Um, I hope you enjoy. Uh, there's a pepperoni story in there. <laughs> And um, that's fun. And, and enjoy that. And what's the last one? Let me just take a quick look at what that last one is. Hockey mom. I talk about how easy it was for us to get um, to get people involved, especially, I mean, females. We, we didn't really ask any other males. We didn't need any other males. Me, my dad, and my brother were fine. We had enough testosterone in every robbery. Every once in a while, we had to pepper in some estrogen. And it was, I bring up because there were a couple of um, couples in the audience. Actually, the, I think the entire audience was couples. And um, that's why I told the hockey mom story about how easy it was to get uh, hockey mom to do shit. So bonus episode coming at you. Enjoy the stories and uh, we will see you um, next week with episode five. Uh, super excited to bring that to you guys. Enjoy this now i am going to ask for a word about anything go frisbee 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 does anybody got a story about frisbee <laughs> um well <laughs> my dad played okay. frisbee with me did, did other people's dad play frisbee with them Dad, what's that? Yeah. Right? What the fuck are you talking about? Listen, I... I 
I feel compelled to give you a little bit of background about why I'm standing up here giving you a story about prisons, right? I come from a really fucked up family who has a dysfunctional family. Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> All right, listen. So I want you to just think for two seconds about your dysfunctional family. Think about the most dysfunctional woman you have ever had with that family. Fuck a lot, because I'm about to trump that shit. Okay? I had the dysfunctional family of all times. Let me tell you a little bit about how I was raised. I could tell what breakfast was based on the, um, how my mother's car was parked in the driveway. Okay? She had a little tiny Chevy Citation, 1985 Chevy Citation. Flat six, straight six. Thing was a beast. Thing could do jumps. Okay? If you woke up and the car was in the in the driveway, parked perfectly, you were eating a hot breakfast. If you looked out at that driveway and that car was a little askew, maybe the mirror hanging off, <laughs> you better get ready for some Captain Crocky. If you looked out and the car was in the neighbor's yard, <laughs> You better go back to bed and save your dollars. You weren't eating for a while. My mother was absolutely insane and had to drink just to temper her level of anxiety. My mother was like an untrained border collie. You ever seen one of these fucking things? Like if you don't train that thing to do something, it is going to make your life miserable. And that's what she did to us kids. Now take my dad. My dad was a sociopath. Anybody raised by one of these guys? Is that fun? Okay, my dad was super strict about rules. He, he said, you need to obey all the rules of society that we agree with. <laughs> From there, all bets were off. So raised by a psychopath, uh, raised by a sociopath, so it should be no um, surprise to you that I did prison time. And you were here at the first show, sir? Uh, no? Okay, because it's really good, right? No, finish it. No, I. Is that right? Are you wrong? Shit, wait a minute. Yeah, that's it! No, I gotta tell you, before I went to prison, man, I was facing three years. And um, I gotta tell you, my brain just completely collapsed and shut down on the ride to prison, like in the back of the van. And my brain was like, listen, for the next three years, don't get raped and don't get stabbed. My brain said again, hey, three years, don't get raped and don't get stabbed. About a week into my sentence, my brain was like, hey, just try not to get stabbed. No, listen. As much as that's like just the awful thing, don't watch Oz before you go inside. Inside that. That's just that's just not a good thing. But I, I can absolutely tell you that I was horrified by the idea of going into prison to the point that I started to like work out multiple times a day. I started to really try to bulk up. And then I said to myself, oh shit, I think I'm just getting sexier. <laughs> it's absolutely um, frightening. And I can tell you that the threat of violence was absolutely very real, you know, a very real fear. But what was worse was the mental locked up 23 hours a day. And, and I'm not here to garner sympathy for inmates. That's not my job here. I left prison thinking to myself, 
thank God for prison. Because let me just tell you, and I'm going to end you with this, and these guys are going to do their job. Uh, I want to end you with what the mentality of prisoners is. There's a prison justice. You know about it. You've seen movies about it. But this is how real it is. If I rape you and then kill you, the other inmates won't like me. I'll do very difficult time. But if I kill you and then fuck you, I am the king of prison. And that's how fucked up that place is. That is me doing your thing. All right. Hot dog. So we went from hot dog to pepperoni to salami. Everybody got that that was a girth issue, right? <laughs> <laughs> girth issue for her? Okay. Uh, I'm going to set off then for the topic of the next story, um, of which I heard a couple of times mentioned, which is love. So I want to give you guys a little bit of background of how I ended up in prison. And I do have to blame Boston somewhat for this. It was a crime town back then. Like I said, the Anjulos were in the place before Whitey took over and just messed everything up. So it wasn't uncommon to find criminal families. And that's where I come from. My dad uh, got us into uh, robbing jewelry stores. So for five years, between 1990 and 1995, my father, brother, and I took down 22 jewelry stores. <laughs> 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 wow. It's, it's so funny because when I say that, people are usually quiet and they're like, are we being robbed right now? And then, and then when they get comfortable, I get cool reactions like that. And I have to tell you that how, how do I know that, that my dad is the one that got us into this? Because I, I was an adult. I could have made my own decisions. But I know because I tried to rob the store 24 convenience store about a year prior to our actual first robbery. I couldn't do it. I had done, I had, you know, I had the desperation. I was all high on drugs at the point. I wanted more drugs. That was a place that had money for me to get more drugs, and I was going to go and do it. I didn't have the balls. But the second my dad put a gun in my hand and told, hey, hey, we go get me his stuff, I didn't question it for a second. So our first robbery was basically presented to us as retribution. My dad had invested some money in a diamond broker who was bringing diamonds in from Israel because that's every diamond in the world was, that was mined anywhere on the planet went through Israel. This guy was bringing some into the country and my dad invested some money. Long story short, he ripped my dad off. So my dad came to me and my brother and understand that if it was just me, there's no recovery. I'm 150, 5'9". Even with a gun, you might look at me and be like, yeah, I can take him. I'm not giving you my chance. <laughs> <laughs> but my brother was 6'4 and 250 pounds. He was all roided out. Like when he, he didn't even need a gun. He'd be like, excuse me, so can I have that? He'd be like, yeah, we're ready to go for you. So a couple days before Christmas of 1990, we stood behind the garage of a man we never met before, waiting for him to pull up so we could run home. My brother would get shit out of him, not in his case. And that's exactly what we did. Okay? How do I tie this into love? <laughs> I grabbed that case and I ran across Route 9 in Framingham. That's where it was. There was a divider across. I hurled that son of a bitch. That's where I think my hip issue started. And I got to the, I got to the stolen car my dad was, was waiting in. I got in the back and I sat in the case. My brother got in and we sped away. And my dad said, I don't care what's in that case, boys. Just want you to know I love you very much. And at that point, I swear to God, if he asked me to rob the Pope, man, I would have done it. 
how
every single one of them said yes. Not a single person was like, you guys are crazy, I'm going to, I'm going to the cops. And that's the one big with shit. Thank God for women, you guys go. Yeah. <laughs> so hold on, let me get this straight. So you're, you're, get off the board! So you're asking me to.